Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start by thanking our new patrons, Jenny Jackson, Jimmy Horrors, Brandy Mulder, Lauren Rose, Michelle M., Amanda Lee, Tim Tim, Girl on Saturn, Lacey Miller, and Jennifer Brunson. Thank you so much for your support. Patrons get a lot more 13. Ad-free episodes, additional monthly stories, weekly updates on the show, merch, and access to a Patreon-only Discord, where you can chat with us about the show or whatever else is on your mind. Learn more at patreon.com forward slash 13 pod. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you haven't had a chance to look at the merch store lately, check out our new suburban Gothic and Cortland Avenue market and deli designs. Also, we owe an apology to two actors in last month's episode for leaving them out of the opening for the show. Abigail Blythe played Mackenzie and Carly Calhoun played Lucy in last month's episode, Never Walk the Tracks at Night. We're so happy to welcome them to the show. This month's story is called The Light Under the Door, and it's a two-parter, written and narrated by me, Ian Epperson. All right, settle in. Turn down the lights. Are you ready? Here comes the show. Sometimes your dreams fall right into your lap, and all you have to do is say yes. My wife and I decided to spring for our dream home. We'd heard all about how the market is terrible for buyers, but we were done renting. Our girls were getting bigger, and we wanted them to feel like they were grounded in a place instead of moving around as often as we had been. We were ready to find the place where we would spend the next 20 to 30 years. Despite all the market warnings, we decided to really go for it, to find the perfect place. The worst thing that can happen is that we strike out and try again later. We were expecting a long process to find our home. We'd made a list of everything we wanted in a house. We were prepared to be more realistic when we had to, to let some of those things go when the time came but we never expected that the first house we'd go see would be perfect. And even though it wasn't in our ideal budget, we could stretch a little bit and make it work. The house was in an exclusive neighborhood on the hillside looking out over the Ohio River. It was about 35 minutes from my job in downtown Cincinnati. And moving out of the city was a big change for us. It was the edge of the suburbs. Across the river, we could see the little towns on the Kentucky side. The place felt like it was secluded, but it really wasn't. The realtor walked us through the history of the house and the neighborhood. When it was built, the neighborhood was really in the middle of nowhere, an enclave for wealthy businessmen outside the city. The houses were big, built in the 1920s, and pretty well maintained. They also had a lot of land. The front yards were big and the lots were wide. The backyards on our street were small and they were fenced in behind six foot tall privacy fences. Behind all those fences, there was a trail that was kept up by the neighborhood association. The realtor took us out through the gate and sure enough, a mulch trail with a railing on one side, protecting against the drop off toward the river 
It wasn't a complete drop, more like a steep dirt hill. There were some small trees growing on it, and when I looked down, I could see that the trail doubled back on itself. About 20 feet below us, it continued right on. She said that it would take you all the way down to a little platform by the river. I didn't love the idea of this trail, mainly because of my youngest daughter. She was big enough to reach the latch and open up the gate, but young enough that I didn't trust her to be alone on that trail. My wife saw my concern, and she whispered in my ear, We can just put another latch up higher. She was right. There was nothing stopping us from moving the gate latch out of her reach. That was all it took to quiet my fears. Another thing that kept the price down on the house. There was a landslide about 90 years ago that damaged a bunch of the homes. The county and state had reinforced the hillside with concrete barriers at the base of the ridgeline. But even though the risk had been mediated, it was still considered a hazard zone. So insurance would be a little bit higher, but the asking price was lower. We asked the realtor to give us the night to think about it. We barely even discussed it. Instead, we started making plans before we'd even started the process. The next day, we called the realtor and told her that we wanted the place. We put all of our savings down on the house, and within a month, we pulled up in a moving truck and started turning this old house into our new home. I don't want to give the impression that we're very well off. Even with all the contingencies I mentioned before, the neighborhood was quite expensive, and ours was the smallest, ugliest house on the street. But it was our ugly little house. The first day, we got the kids' room set up. We got all the furniture in place in the master bedroom, and we at least got most of the boxes into the rooms where they were supposed to go. That was enough for one night. We put the kids to bed, and my wife and I collapsed into the sofa. The whole place was full of boxes and storage totes and clutter. Half of it will be going to the basement over the next few days. It's moments like these when I sometimes imagine telling my parents about it. Little life events. Things that they didn't get to live to see. My mom passed when I was very young. I was too young to remember her. My dad passed a few years ago. They never got to see our first real home. But I think they would have liked it. We had a couple glasses of wine while we sat on the couch. I scooched closer to her, and I put my hand on her thigh. She leaned into me and rested her head on my shoulder. We sat there like that for a moment before she took my hand and pulled it around her waist. She raised her head up to meet my gaze and kissed me. Then she pulled herself on top of me. I melted into the couch cushions. We lost ourselves for a moment. And then she stopped and asked if I wanted to go upstairs.
The next day was all unpacking and deciding what was going to go down into the basement for storage and what would stay out. The basement was the only part of the house that gave me pause. When I started kindergarten, I went to my grandmother's house after school and stayed with her until my dad got off work. It was kind of a dual-purpose situation. I couldn't be home alone yet, and my grandmother's mind was starting to slip. She took walks and she would forget where she was or how to get home. It wasn't all the time, and not even most of the time, but it was happening more and more. If she decided to take one of her walks, I was just supposed to go with her. And if we got lost, I would ask for help. We did take some walks, but as far as I know, she never got lost. But she did talk a lot about my grandfather. Every day, I got off the bus, and she'd be waiting on the porch, always happy to see me. That kind of arrangement probably wouldn't happen today, but it was the 80s, and no one thought twice about it. She had a basement under her house. It was behind a door and off of the kitchen. A rickety old set of steps went down to a dirt floor. There were windows up around the ceiling. Outside, those windows were at ground level. But for me, at five years old down in the basement, they were far above my head. But they let in just enough sun for me to find the pull string light. The walls were exposed stone, and all along them were big wooden shelves that my grandfather had made decades ago. The shelves were lined with boxes, some of them falling apart and spilling out their contents. On rainy days, when we couldn't go outside, I went exploring in the basement. The reason my dad felt comfortable leaving me with my grandmother is that her episodes always happened later at night. But they'd been happening more and more often. It was only a matter of time before they began intruding on the day. Because of those windows, she kept the basement door locked at night. It would be easy for someone to get in through one of them at night and drop down to the basement floor. If someone did that, they'd find a locked door at the top of the steps. It may not stop them, but it might give her time to get out of the house. The light bulb in the basement had gone out a week before, and she'd forgotten to change it. But there was enough light from the windows up by the ceiling that I could still see to play. I don't know how long I was down there, but at some point, my grandmother had one of her episodes where she forgot things. And she forgot that I was in the house. She lost track of what time it was. She took out her hearing aids, closed and locked the basement door, and went to bed. I don't know how long I was down there, but I remember looking up and seeing the closed door. She never closed the door on me. I bounded up the stairs. I banged on the door and I shouted and cried terrified and in a full-blown panic. But she couldn't hear me. She was already 
asleep. I noticed that the light was beginning to shift and dim. It was getting dark outside. Soon, it would be night, and there would be no light at all in the basement, and I would be trapped in the dark. I crept down the stairs as quietly as I could, the shadows arcing in ways I'd never seen them before. I tried the pull string light, hoping that somehow it would work, despite the burned out bulb. It didn't. A whole new wave of panic washed over me. I ran back to the top of the stairs and banged louder on the door, but there was nothing. I have no idea how long I sat on that top step, watching the light slowly fade until it was completely dark. The only light that I had was coming from the crack under the door, a tiny dull crack of light against a deep, impenetrable unknown. Eventually, my dad came to pick me up. Luckily, he had a key and could walk right in even if my grandmother had locked up the house. He must have been terrified when he arrived. My grandmother asleep in bed. No sign of me anywhere. As a parent now, I know exactly the kind of panic he must have felt. Eventually, he thought to open the basement door. And there I sat. I was shaking. The panic stuck with me for a long time after that. It took days before I felt right again. And my dad knew there was no way he could let me stay there again. Not after that. I came back to the present, shaking myself out of the memory. It still gets to me today. Basements. But luckily, the one in this house isn't anything like my grandmother's. For one thing, it's finished. No dirt floors, no shelves along the walls. We envisioned it as a kind of hangout space for our oldest daughter. After all, our youngest had a playroom upstairs, so she could have her own space in the basement. There's a usable side room where we'd store some odds and ends, but the rest of the space would be hers, even if she had to share it with her little sister from time to time. That night, my wife and I were exhausted. We'd christened the house the night before, but now we were sore and sweaty. There wouldn't be a repeat christening tonight. We were trying to get our youngest daughter settled in her own room, but it wasn't going well. She'd been waking up in the middle of the night. We'd be jolted awake by the sound of her door opening. Then the pitter-patter of little footsteps as she ran down the hallway, throwing open our door and climbing into bed. So, some nights, we gave in and one of us would go sleep with her. If she woke up next to one of us, she'd just close her eyes and drift right off again. If she got up and ran to the next room in a panic, well, it wasn't so easy getting her back to sleep. We both did the bedtime routine with her, change into pajamas, 
read a book, and tonight it was my wife's turn to sleep in there with her. So I said goodnight and let myself out. I flipped off the light as I left, and my wife turned on the nightlight, a little stuffed bunny with a light-up belly that made yellow light throughout the whole room. It had been a long day. I made my way to the master bedroom and climbed into bed too. Despite being so tired and having the bed to myself, I was struggling to get comfortable. My mind was racing. Remembering my grandmother's basement had brought someone else to mind. My uncle's girlfriend. Her name was Debbie. They'd been together when I was very young. I don't remember meeting her. She was one of those people who had just always been around. They lived a few minutes away from us and came by to visit sometimes and we always saw them at family gatherings. Debbie was a few years younger than my dad and my uncle in her late 20s, I think. She was a teacher, which meant that she finished up school just about when I did. After the incident with my grandmother, my dad made an arrangement with her to look after me. I'd still go to my grandmother's house, but it'd only be for a few minutes. Then, Debbie would stop by and pick me up after she finished work. We'd go back to my house or to a playground down the street. I remember thinking that she was so cool. And I think she was my first friend. I didn't really see her on the weekends because my dad was home. So, every Monday, when she'd pick me up from my grandmother's, she'd put on a surprised face and she'd say, how did you get so big? I knew I looked the same as the last time that she'd seen me, but I was still young enough to get excited for just about anything. Those were some of the best memories of my childhood. And we went on like that all through elementary school. In a lot of ways, Debbie is still the person that I think of as a mother figure. I know that's not fair to my real mom. I know she loved me with everything that she had. But I never knew her. I was just too young. So, Debbie kind of took on that role. But then, something happened. She and my uncle split up. And just like that, Debbie was out of my life. It was devastating, and I was heartbroken. But by now, I was a preteen and entering that brooding stage. I tried to make myself believe that it didn't matter. I saw Debbie one more time, about two years later. It was the fall of 1993. My dad and I were shopping for back-to-school clothes. And then I saw her out of the corner of my eye. She spotted us from across the store. She gave a timid little wave, not sure whether she should approach. But my dad waved back and made a little gesture saying it was okay for her to come say hi. She and my dad talked for a few minutes. It didn't seem weird or uncomfortable. Whatever happened between her and my uncle, that was none of our business. Then she turned to me, and she bent down a little bit. Muscle memory from when I was smaller, and she had to kneel down to be on my level. Her face changed when she looked at me, 
She got a little sad when she said, How'd you get so big? I was old enough now that this felt forced and cringy. I looked around to make sure that no one had heard. But even so, I got a little sad, missing the time that we used to have together. That was the last time that we saw her. A few weeks later, she and her friends were driving home from the city after a night out. They had a designated driver. They did all the right things. But a drunk driver fell asleep at the wheel. He blew through a red light at full speed. And that was that. It was a full day later before I heard the news. Things traveled slower in the 90s. All those years ago when my dad told me what happened to her. It was raining. I remember sitting up, listening to it hit the windows and ceiling. Now, all these years later, I'm thinking about her as the rain starts to tap on the window next to me. I always seem to think about her when it rains at night, and the house is real quiet. Sometimes, I have dreams about her. It doesn't happen very often, just a few times over the years. In the dreams, she's still the age she was back then, but I'm whatever age I am in real life. It's the kind of dream that lingers with you and colors your day. I'm older now than Debbie ever got to be, older than my mom got to be. It puts my life and my time with my wife and my girls in perspective. The older you get, the more you realize how much there is to miss. And I can't help but be sad for all the things they didn't get to have. Just as my eyes were finally getting heavy and my mind was getting quiet, I heard something like a limb snapping out in the distance. The next morning, I drove my oldest daughter to school. As we made our way down that long, winding road out of the neighborhood, she asked me how long it would be until we moved again. I told her that we own the house now. We weren't renting anymore. We'd be there for a long time. So we're not moving, she asked. I told her no, we weren't. She looked out the window for a long time, and I could feel the tension in the car. Up here, the houses aren't particularly close together. It made it feel like the drive was taking longer than it really was. We reached the bottom of the hill and the main road. Finally, she spoke up. Can we move again? I wasn't necessarily surprised by the question. Change is tough for kids. And being a kid in middle school isn't fun for anyone. I told her no. We paid a lot of money for this house. It's ours now. I cringed a little bit at how defensive it sounded, and I tried to start over. I asked her what was on her mind. She was quiet for a long time. Finally, she spoke up again. It's nothing, she said. I just had a bad dream. After I dropped her off at school, 
I went back to the house. It was my last day off before going back to work tomorrow. I was waiting for some furniture that we bought to be delivered, including the new couch that would go into the basement for my oldest daughter's hangout. Maybe, when her basement space was finished, it would feel a little bit more like a home. My wife had already gone back to work, so I had the place to myself. In addition to getting the furniture situated, I had a handful of projects to work on. It was one of those dreary days where the rain hangs in the air like mist. The house had a lot of big windows and natural light. We hadn't put any curtains up yet, so the light poured in from all over, but it was gray and diffuse. It was hard to get motivated. I walked around the place, procrastinating but feeling busy. I moved from the kitchen to the hall, then up the stairs. The quiet was eerie. I poked my head into the playroom. It was a mess of toys on the floor from our youngest, and a pile of boxes and other items stacked against the wall that would need to be put away. I'll get that done today, too. I went downstairs and poked my head into our oldest daughter's room. When I opened the door, I was surprised by the darkness. Like the rest of the house, she didn't have any curtains yet. But when I flipped on the light, I saw that she had covered the windows. She used her bedsheets to do it. They hung lopsided and haphazardly from what had been an empty curtain rod. It wasn't like that when she went to bed the night before. She must have done it after we'd all gone to sleep. I suppose that I can understand feeling exposed. She's on the ground floor after all. But her bed sheets? She wouldn't have had anything to sleep under. No wonder she'd been so grumpy this morning. No wonder she'd asked about moving. The matching curtains that we'd ordered should be delivered today too. I'd make sure to get them up before she went to bed tonight. I imagined her laying awake all night, frantically blocking the windows. What was it that she'd said in the car? Just a bad dream. The delivery drivers took a couch, two end tables, and an ottoman down to the basement. They also took a pull-out couch upstairs to the guest room, which would double as a playroom for our youngest. The curtains also came and I made a point of hanging them all through the first floor that morning, taking special care in my oldest daughter's room. Maybe now she could get some rest. I finished almost all of my projects for the day. I organized the playroom upstairs for our youngest, and I put my oldest daughter's hangout room together in the basement. It would be a great space for sleepovers, and just for getting away from her parents and her sister, the way that preteens and teenagers do. It was gonna be a good space for her. The last thing I did was put a new latch on the gate outside, high up so our youngest daughter couldn't reach it. When I was done, I went to the living room to relax for a few minutes before everyone got home. I put my head back on the couch and I closed my eyes. When I opened them, 
I noticed something that I hadn't seen before. There was a little crack in the plaster, right where the wall meets the ceiling. Not too big, a few inches long. Had that been there before? Either way, I would need to learn how to patch that up. We settled into the house over the next few weeks. We met a couple of the neighbors, and everyone seemed nice. They all recommended the trail down to the river, since we hadn't done it yet. One of them told us to look out for a patch of the trail that gets steep. It sneaks up on you, he said. He also mentioned something else. He leaned in a little conspiratorially. Has anyone told you about the river witch? He asked. I told him no. He said it was a story the kids in the neighborhood told. It gets spooky down there. The trees get all weird. You can hear sounds all night. Animals, probably. But it's a great way to get the kids to come in at dark. Tell them that that's when the river witch comes up out of the water and up the hill. And if she catches you out, she'll come and get you. I played along and listened to the story. I even told him that it was a good idea. I'd do that even though I had no intention of telling my kids that story. Most neighborhoods have some kind of urban legend, but my kids didn't need to hear that one just yet. Like most legends, there's a kernel of truth in all of them. Other neighbors had told me that sometimes people make their way out of the city and follow the river. They sleep on the banks and sometimes on top of or under that landing at the bottom of the trail. They're harmless, they said, just passing through. My wife, the girls, and me finally decided to take the trail down to the river on a Saturday afternoon. We actually didn't know which direction to take, so on a hunch, we took a right. The path was kept up, and there was a wooden railing that acted as a barrier between the trail and the drop-off. We walked a few houses down, passing gates and everyone else's back fences as well, a couple of them had been left open or were cracked ajar just a little bit, kids probably forgetting to close them. We knew that some of the kids in the neighborhood used the trail and the gates to go between houses. We could even hear them running behind the fence every now and then. After a few minutes, the trail changed. It began to veer away from the houses and backyards so that the trees were on both sides. Then. It made a tight cutback, a sharp turnaround, back on itself as it started down the hillside. As we made our way down, I saw that my neighbor was right about one thing. On this part of the trail, the trees were tall and narrow. The hill beside the trail got so steep that you could see the roots exposed, like their own weight was pulling them out of the ground. It was an eerie sight, all those leaning trees. When we got back, my wife and my oldest went inside and I stayed outside with our youngest. We were playing hide and seek. I tucked myself away in a little corner where the fence meets the house. I was directly under my oldest daughter's window. I crouched down low while my youngest counted by the back door. While I waited to be found, I looked up at the side of the house. The sun was out 
and it showed all the dirt and pollen that had built up on the outside of the windows. And then I noticed something else. Handprints pressed against the glass. How had I never seen those? Her windows were higher up. It couldn't have been one of the kids. I stood up, no longer caring about the game of hide-and-seek. As I looked them over, I wondered if they could be old, but they weren't. There was no dust, no buildup where they'd been. It didn't look like the rest of the window. They were only a couple of days old at the longest. My youngest saw me standing up by the window and ran over. She was still playing hide-and-seek in her mind. I told her that we'd have to play later, and to go get her mother. That afternoon, I drove into the city and I picked up a home security system, complete with a doorbell cam and one that could face into the backyard. If anyone was sneaking around back there, I'd know it. But a few days passed and there was no activity on the cameras. They'd only come on if something was moving and it was set up to give me an alert on my phone if they did. But it was beginning to feel like I'd overreacted. The weather forecast was calling for another huge rain system to move in. It was already the wettest year in almost a century. The girls were finishing up school for the summer, and it was a shame that their break would start this way. A week straight of rainy, dreary days. It started on a Wednesday night. I know it was a Wednesday because I was taking the trash bins down to the curb. It was getting late, and the night was coming on more quickly due to the dark clouds. I watched the lightning far off down the river. There wasn't any thunder yet. I stood there leaning against the mailbox and watching the lights in the sky. I felt the wind pick up. My shirt fluttered a bit in the breeze, and with the wind came the smell of rain. Back inside, my youngest and I sat down on the couch, and we opened a window so we could hear the storm rolling in. We snuggled up on the couch across the room. She was clingy, still a little bit afraid of storms, but fascinated by them nonetheless. We watched the window for flashes of lightning, and I taught her to count how far away it was. Flash. One. Two. Three. As the storm got closer, the lightning became more frequent. It was hard to tell which clap of thunder belonged to which flash of lightning. They got louder too. And then, all at once, the rain started in. Almost right away, I could hear it falling from the roof into puddles that formed in the already saturated ground. We turned on one of my youngest favorite shows, and pretty soon, the sound of the rain from the open window and the big comfy couch put me right to sleep. At some point, my wife came and woke me up. 
it was my turn to put my daughter to bed. We went upstairs and started the bedtime routine. Brush teeth, get into pajamas, read a book, and then we turn off the lights and turn on the nightlight. She snuggled up with her little rabbit, the one that glows yellow light out into the room. And then the two of us fell asleep. I don't know how long I'd been out, but I woke up to a notification on my phone. I was groggy, my eyes half open, registering the vibration. I stared at the light from my phone for a moment before picking it up to see what it was. It was a notification from my security app. That's when I became fully alert. I opened the app right away. I was on a page that accessed the security camera footage around the house. Standing there, in the middle of the backyard, was a woman. I rose to my feet, still groggy but with a frantic sort of energy. I tried to sneak out of the room as quickly and quietly as I could so I wouldn't wake my youngest. My oldest daughter was downstairs by herself. At the bottom of the stairs, I started toward the kitchen where I'd be able to look out at her and get a feel for what was going on. But the kitchen light was still on. If I stepped in there, she'd be able to see me. Maybe I was hesitating out of fear, but also I wanted to know what she was doing and I didn't want her to know that I could see her, at least not yet. I watched on my phone as she looked around the yard, taking in the place. The gate in the back was open. It occurred to me that by moving the latch up, anyone could reach over and unlock it. Was it one of the people who sometimes sleep by the river? I thought about my grandmother. Was it some disoriented neighbor in the wrong yard? She seemed too young to be experiencing dementia, way too young. But then again, the night view on the camera was grainy. I couldn't make out much on the screen. I was standing just outside my oldest's room. It was across from the kitchen door. Her window also faced the backyard. I slowly cracked her bedroom door and peeked in. Her curtains were drawn tight. They always were. I wouldn't be able to get a good view from here. I pulled her bedroom door closed again, and when I looked back at the screen, she was gone. There was no one in the backyard, at least not on the camera. I inspected the screen more closely. Could she be behind a tree? The back gate was still open. If she'd left, she hadn't closed it. I remembered the kitchen window. I crept in. The overhead light made the window reflect back like a mirror. I could only see my own reflection. I turned off the overhead light, and when I did, there she was. Her face was nearly touching the glass. I jumped, startled, and dropped my phone. I moved to hide, ducking behind the refrigerator. She kept looking in. 
And then I noticed something impossible. Images from a thousand photographs flashed through my mind. Photos I'd seen my whole life. It was impossible. But the woman standing outside the window, she looked like my mom. But there was something else. Her features stretched. They were all a little bit exaggerated. There was something inhuman about her. Something uncanny. As the disbelief washed over me, another name came to mind. Something that my neighbor had said. The River Witch. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. This has been part one of The Light Under the Door. Part two is coming next week. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This month's story was written and narrated by me, Ian Epperson. Music, editing, and sound design by Caleb Ritchie. Assistance from Brooke Jeanette and Bridget Howard. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Michael Vasquez, Paul Doyle, Amy Harper, Jackie Kay, Delta Tango, Chantel Payne, Nick, Emily Douglas, Stephanie Klinger, Travis Faber, and Jake R. Thank you so much for your support. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about joining us on Patreon. Check us out on social media. You can find us at Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok under pod13, and you can join the Facebook group at 13 Podcast. Just look for the logo. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show, or contact us about anything else, get in touch at 13podcast.com. You'll find submission guidelines and other info on our website, 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes too. Bridget Howard is standing by your back window. Thanks for listening. See you next week.